efficient attack. Why don't you put me on the, on the pulpit mic instead? Um, this is the first day of our annual Family Emphasis Month, it's something that's been going on for almost two decades now. This year's series is titled Family Practice, and I hope that, that we'll find some practical and I think solidly biblical help for our families over the next few weeks. In Family Practice, we're going to be looking at treating hot flashes, that's today, how to deal with anger, treating chills, that's next week, how to restore affection, treating reflux, that's the following week, that's how to overcome resentment, and then getting fit, that last week we're going to look at how to grow strong in relationships that honor God and honor each other. I realize that some of us have been involved in family malpractice, and perhaps for years. We have the fevers and chills, and we're wasting away with resentment and bitterness. But I'm convinced that God can help us to change that, and that change can begin this month. But don't skip over what I've just said. God can help us to change that. This series is not a spiritual self-help program. Positive, lasting change is possible, but it's going to require more than self-help. It'll require God's help. You will have to get in touch with God. Too often we go to some big conference on marriage or parenting, or we sit through an annual sermon series like this, and we're inspired and hopeful, but it isn't long before that inspiration and hope just fades away. I suspect that what happens is this. We get excited about the principles we're learning and think that we can put them into action and change our situation without changing ourselves. If you think, I want to continue on the same path I've been on, I just don't want the anger and the coldness and the bitterness that have been making me miserable, you're going to be disappointed. I mean, it's no good saying, I don't want to change all that much. I just want to be happier. The biblical principles that we're going to look at this month operate within a particular environment. Outside that environment, they don't work. Let me illustrate. A medical, hospital, uh, med- medical helicopter taking off from the hospital can fly because of basic principles of physics of drag, of lift, and of thrust. Those principles are sound and they're constant. But if you place that same helicopter near the summit of Mount McKinley, it won't get off the ground. The principles remain sound, but the environment, the lack of oxygen in the air at that altitude, will prevent that chopper from flying. It will not have sufficient lift to get off the ground. The principles that we look at this month work in a particular environment. They work in the context of apprenticeship, of discipleship, to use the biblical term, to Jesus. They don't succeed outside of it. Or to be more precise, the principles may succeed, but you will fail in putting them into practice outside a nourishing, learning, and richly resourced relationship with Jesus. You just won't have sufficient lift to get off the ground. So the single most helpful thing 
I can say to you this whole month is this. The life-changing principles for loving family relationships that we will look at are built on the foundation of a deep-rooted commitment to Jesus as Lord. So decide in your heart and confess your decision openly to be Jesus' person, his apprentice, his follower, totally committed to his leadership in everything. Tell God that's what you've decided and trust him for his help. It's in that environment that the principles we look at today and over the next few weeks will work. Today, we're looking at treating hot flashes. Today, we're talking about anger. Anger is epidemic in America. It has damaged many families that I know personally, and some irreparably. It has shattered marriages, injured children, been the cause of depression, addiction, and infidelity. Anger has been a chief factor in driving many children and young adults out of the church. If I was a doctor in a trauma board and paramedics brought you in with multiple injuries, I would prioritize those injuries and treat the one most critical to your survival first. When it comes to treating families, anger is right at the top of the priority list requiring treatment. I say that both from experience and from biblical, dominical even, authority. When in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus described the kind of righteousness that God desires, that beautiful kind that makes life worth living, he went on to present the most pernicious threats to that kind of life. And what was the one he mentioned first? Anger. That was no accident. Anger is a headwaters from which flows a virtual cataract of evils that can destroy families and friendships, communities and churches, and even nations. St. James put it bluntly, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Maybe you're thinking, hey, hold on, just a minute. Jesus was angry sometimes. And doesn't the Bible say, be angry and sin not? Anger isn't a sin. It's what you do with anger that makes it a sin. Okay, if you say that to me, I'm going to say, you're right. You got me there. But let me just ask, what do you do with your anger? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people justify their anger, even while their family was fighting for its survival. They're like someone whose 10-year-old has just fallen overboard during a family outing at the lake, but instead of rescuing him, they start arguing about who's to blame for the accident. If you find it necessary to justify your anger to yourself or anyone else, you're already in trouble. What will it profit you if you succeed in justifying your anger but lose your family? Is that the life you want for yourself? You want to be able to say, I'm right to be angry? It's not the life that God wants for you. Neither is it the life 
that you're condemned to live. With God's help, you can change, and you will have God's help if you want it. But we have to understand how this works. So let's read Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 25 to verse 32. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we're all members of one body. And your anger do not sin. By the way, if you look at that in your Bible, it's probably going to be in quotes, because that is a direct quotation from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. And your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let me just stop there, and I'm not going to say more about this in the message, but this is worth a a biblical study. Read how often patterns of speech are related to the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures. And negative patterns of speech grieve the Holy Spirit. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as in Christ God forgave you. When we talk about anger, we risk the danger of speaking in generalities. Anger comes in a variety of categories, and the Greek language that our New Testament was written in has different words to describe it. There are three of them mentioned in verse 31 alone, along with malice, which is present when anger is present. The most general of the words translated anger is there in verse 31, and it refers to an emotional response caused by an obstruction to the will. I want this. My will is obstructed. The response emotionally is anger. As such, it is not wrong or sinful, and it can even serve a constructive purpose, though it's still better to avoid it whenever possible. As Dallas Willard put it, headaches are no sin, but do we really need them? Anger is not a sin as such, but do we really need it? And Paul tells us point blank to get rid of it. The next condition on the anger spectrum, you can think of it in those terms, is bitterness. Bitterness is a settled resentment originating in a past wrong. The bitter person lives with a bad taste in his mouth all the time. It's something he just can't forget. It comes back again and again, and the bitter taste can actually get worse over time instead of better. The author of Hebrews uses this very same word when he writes, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grow up to cause trouble and defile many. He understood that bitterness is contagious. Plant it in your soul and it will grow wild through your life 
And then it will spread to other people's lives and will cause trouble and defile many. Some churches are filled with bitterness. It grows all over their church. Families are filled with bitterness. It's an ugly thing to see how one root of bitterness can grow not just into multiple lives, but into multiple generations of lives. Because someone missed the grace of God. The third word is the one that's translated as rage. Whereas anger is not always wrong, rage is. Whenever it's mentioned in Scripture, it is always condemned. Rage is a wildfire. It's a gun with the safety off. It's a landmine buried just below the surface. Rage has no place at all in a Christian's life. Our country is suffering an epidemic of rage. People are shooting each other at the slightest provocation. The term road rage was coined by and for this generation. I read something this week I thought was shocking. A professor at the University of Texas asked his students if they'd ever thought about killing anyone. And if so, they were to write about it as a homework assignment. 91% of men and 84% of women handed in detailed, vivid homicidal fantasies. What's going to happen to us? And how sad for people to live with that inside of them. Now understand what's happening. Rage does not suddenly appear out of nowhere. You may think that it does, but it doesn't. It lies buried like that landmine in a swamp of anger and bitterness waiting for someone to step on it. The only way to deal with it is to drain the swamp. You cannot diffuse rage without getting rid of the anger and bitterness in which it hides. Now, we'll talk more about that in a minute, and we'll talk specifically about bitterness in two weeks. Now, there's something else here. Anger is never inert. It grows. It expands. It is responsive to its environment. You can see the progressive nature of anger here, as well as in other New Testament passages. The anger in verse 26 precedes the unwholesome, the Greek word is sapros, it means rotten, talk of verse 29. Anger leads routinely to profanity, vulgarity, insults. Anger has a dirty mouth. Notice how the bitterness and rage and anger of verse 31 lead to the brawling. Now don't think fist fights. The Greek word here signifies shouting or screaming. The anger, the bitterness, and rage lead to shouting, to screaming, and to slander, which refers to speaking in a way that denigrates someone, that puts him down with the intention of injuring him. Jesus made the same point brilliantly in the Sermon on the Mount. The body of the sermon begins with a warning to his disciples against anger. Now listen to the progression. I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. That's bad enough. But anyone who says to his brother, Raka, 
is answerable to the Sanhedrin. That's worse. Bracha is an insult that means something like empty head. Interestingly, every language seems to have a word for this. An American English equivalent would be something like stupid, idiot. The progression continues, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. To call someone a fool in that culture was not merely to say he was unintelligent. That's what raka meant. And that was bad enough. But to call someone a fool was to say he was a perverted, worthless, expletive deleted. So you see what's happening? Anger is progressive. It leads to contempt and contempt to rejection. A person filled with these things cannot live in harmony with the Spirit of God. But if you're caught up in it, in anger, and let's be frank, some of us in this room are, what can you do about it? Is there any hope? Absolutely, there is hope. See, anger goes from being a response when that will is obstructed to being a choice, to being a habit. There are only limited things you can do in the moment to prevent the response or to change the habit, but the choice is something that you can begin to change today, and that will eventually make it possible to change the other two. Now, you may be thinking, but I don't make a choice to be angry. I've never made a choice to be angry. It just happens. But you have made a choice to think about the wrong done to you. You have chosen not to reject the thought of your enemy's wickedness. You've accepted it and then rolled it around on your tongue and then savored it like the choicest of morsels. You've added up your enemy's offenses one after another. And sometimes when you finished the first time, you went back and you did it the second time. And when you finished the second time, you went back and did it the third time. You've told other people about those wrongs, sometimes slyly, maybe in the form of a prayer request. But you kept that wrong alive. Those were choices you made. You could have made other ones and changed the trajectory of your anger but you chose not to, and now the ability to even choose otherwise has been compromised. Compromised, but not negated. It's still possible to change. How? You start by making a solemn decision. I don't know how to overemphasize this. You make a decision to stop being an angry person. Skip this step, and you're probably not going to succeed. You make a decision. Are you sick of it? Just sick of it? Make up your mind. Commit. Choose not to be an angry person. You say, well, nobody wants to be an angry person. You'd be surprised. We get something from being angry. There's a burst of adrenaline, a high of sorts, that comes with anger. Many people find a kind, and it's really messed up kind, but they find a kind of equilibrium between the harm that's been done to them and that the anger that they hold. Without their anger to balance them, they would free fall back into their hurt. 
For some people, anger is a shield that protects them from being vulnerable to others. Still others, and these are the most serious cases, have so identified with their anger that they don't know who they'd be without it. Their life is one giant resentment. If they give that up, they won't be themselves anymore. They are their anger. That is a horrible place to be in. Over and over in Scripture, we're encouraged to give it up, to quit the anger, to lay it aside, to take it off, to get rid of it. If you think, but I don't know how to do that, you need to realize that how is not the first concern. Would you, if you knew how? Are you willing to lay it down? If God shows you how and helps you to be anger-free, do you intend to cooperate? If the answer is yes, then I have some things to share with you. If the answer is no, you're going to have to stop blaming other people for your anger. This is on you now. It always has been. But now you know it. Once you have decided, you've committed to get rid of anger, I don't want to be an angry person anymore. The first thing to do, at least in your own mind, is bring your enemy, the object of your anger, that may be your spouse, your child, your parent, someone at work, bring that person into your camp, at least in your own mind. Instead of thinking of your individual needs and rights and how that other person, mom, dad, son, daughter, husband, wife, fellow church member, isn't meeting them, think of the relationship that exists between you as something that exists in its own right and is in need of assistance in order to be healthy. So for a husband and wife, just for an example, instead of thinking about what you need from your spouse and that you're not getting, think about what the relationship between the two of you, that one flesh merger that exists in its own right and is called marriage, Think of what that requires in order to thrive, and to the extent that you're able, provide it. As long as you operate out of an oppositional framework, Smith versus Smith, anger is going to be very difficult to overcome, almost impossible. So bring that person into your camp. Start there. We have a relationship. What do I need to do to nurture, to help, to rescue that relationship? That idea is present in verse 25, where Paul calls on church members to start thinking of each other as one body. What harms you harms me. What serves you serves me. Intentionally think of yourselves, husband, wife, son, dad, mother, daughter, as connected, as one. Honor that relationship, not just your individual needs. If you just do that and work at it, it will take work. Everything will begin to change. Next, understand when, the new, when you experience the natural response of anger towards someone who has thwarted your will, your desire. When you feel that, you do not need to act on it. You are not your feelings. Our culture has largely lost that distinction to its great detriment. You are not your feelings, and you do not need to act on your feelings. 
Now, I'm not talking about denying your feelings. That's never healthy. You recognize them, but you don't need to act on them. Don't sell yourself into slavery to your emotions. So Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. You don't need to obey your feelings. They're not your boss. Jesus is your boss. People who do not understand this, and our culture is littered with them, who simply have to act on their feelings, are well on their way to addiction. In fact, they're already there. And people who are addicted to their feelings usually end up addicted to something else as well. Next, it is vitally important to understand that you cannot simply stop anger. You must replace it. When it comes to change, this is true whether you're talking about a habit like smoking or eating junk food or about the change from the angry self to the Christ-like self. See, it's how we're made. Think about it. The cells in your body are entirely replaced at least once every seven years. The old is discarded, but only as it is replaced by the new. You can see that in our text. The person stealing in verse 28 must not only stop stealing, he must replace stealing with useful work that enriches the lives of others. Think about the paradigm shift there between I'm going to get something for me to I'm going to get something so I can give to others. The unwholesome, I mentioned the, that's the word rotten in Greek, talk of verse 29 isn't just stopped, it's replaced. This is a highly intentional process with what builds others up and benefits them. We see the same thing in verses 31 and 32. The bitterness, rage, and anger of verse 31 don't simply disappear. They are replaced with the kindness, compassion, and forgiveness of verse 32. When we try to overcome anger by focusing on our anger, the end result is usually more anger. When we focus on kindness, compassion, forgiveness, then anger gets replaced. Understand this is an intentional process that requires serious thought. You cannot do this thoughtlessly. You can hardly do anything in the Christian life thoughtlessly, at least in the beginning. You must think about the wholesome things you're going to say before you say them. You must plan ways to express kindness, compassion, forgiveness. Whereas you once rehearsed the wrongs done you, now you rehearse the rights that you're going to do. And this also requires endurance. The kind of change we're talking about will not happen because you try it once. Or you do it for a day. You will need to persevere. And not just in your actions, even more importantly, you will need to persevere in trusting God to supply everything you need to become this person, his person of peace and kindness. This is a faith exercise. Now, two more things. I think, and I know it sounds odd, but I believe it's true, the main reason people don't choose to give up anger and replace it with better things is that they're afraid. They're afraid of dropping their shield. They're afraid that they won't be themselves without their anger. They're afraid that without their anger, they'll get run over. I don't think any of those things are true, but let me ask you. 
Wouldn't you rather get run over than keep things the way they are? And besides that, you can count on God to protect you, to transform you, and if necessary, to vindicate you. Like everything else in the life of a person following Jesus, this is an exercise in faith. This life is from faith from first to last. Finally, you will probably need an ally in this process. Someone to whom you can confess your failures and celebrate your successes. A person who will ask you tough questions and pray for you and for whom you can do the same. Start talking to God about finding such a person. Look for someone who's a little further along than you are in this process and ask if he, if you're a man, or she, if you're a woman, will meet you once a week or once every couple weeks for the next six months for prayer and accountability on this matter. Be proactive. Start praying now for that person and looking. Now let me close with this. In the decades since World War II, vast quantities of live explosives have been recovered in Europe. In France, even into the 1990s, hundreds of tons of explosives were being found every year. In 1993 alone, 13 World War II bombs exploded killing 12 people. In 2007, it was reported that Dutch children had found an unexploded artillery shell and had been playing with it. In fact, they had found it months before and had been playing with it for months. It was a live shell packed with high explosives. Fortunately, someone saw what they were doing, contacted the authorities who learned about it before it went off. Anger in families can lie half-buried for decades, sometimes for generations, and then go off. And when it does, someone, usually children and grandchildren, get hurt. If you are filled with live explosive anger, do something about it. This is not the life God wants for you. Won't you begin to give it to God today and be done with it? Now let's pray. God, help us with this. Lord Jesus, you said of those who stay with your teaching that they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Lord, some of us need to be freed from anger. Show us the truth about ourselves, but especially about you and what you have for us. And set us free. We're going to stand together and sing a hymn, and as we do, the men who are going to help with communion can come forward.